whenever I think about it that way, it, it never ceases to amaze me that this is like real life. It's not a dream. And I, I feel super lucky. I don't know who you are, but welcome to the Irish Photography Podcast. Sit back, relax, and listen about cameras, gear, settings, stories, and all things photography. Join Darren on Ireland's Best Photography Podcast. Let's go. And you're very welcome to episode 148 of the Irish Photography Podcast. My name is Darren. I'm your host this evening, and I'm joined by somebody who is an absolutely phenomenal photographer, and he's just won the Natural Landscape Awards. I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast, Eric Bennett. How are you getting on, man? Good. Cheers, Darren. Thanks for having me on. Cheers, man. I'm delighted you brought a drink to celebrate with us. Yeah, you know, it's a fantastic achievement that you've just just one, and I know we're going to get into it during the podcast, and I'm really excited to have this conversation with you because looking at your images, I could pick out one of your images and you could tell me so many stories in relation to that. But what I want to kind of get into is the the nuts and bolts about you, what makes you stir as a photographer, and you know what gives you the passion that is clear when I look at your images. So I suppose to kind of start us off, really, tell us, in case anybody doesn't know who you are, who is Eric? Uh, well, most of all, I'm a father of three kids and, uh, I live in Utah in the United States right now because nice. it's my favorite place in the world at the moment. Been here for the last 10 years or so. Um, I do photography. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I've kind of always been into painting or drawing ever since I was a little kid. So I guess I could say I've been an artist this whole time, but, um, I've been doing nature photography full time for the last seven years or so since 2015, I would say that's when right. I kind of quit my job and dove off into the deep end to just go full on. And, uh, I think most of my passion, like you're asking, you know, what drives me to do this, it comes from the landscape and I just really love nature and even though I'm an artist, I don't really, uh, it's not really about photography so much. I'm not crazy about like camera gear or anything like that. That, that doesn't really excite me so much as the landscape and seeing uh, different places in nature and getting to know this amazing planet that we have better and see as many places as I can during my short time that I'm going to be living here. So that's really what excites me. I love exploration. I love uh, being alone. I love silence, stillness, space, these things that are so rare now in our busy, crazy world. And uh, going into these places where I can experience those things, and it just makes me really happy. And uh, photography is just kind of the tool that I use to share those experiences that I have so that people can know why these places are so important to me and why I find them so valuable. And I just, my whole motivation to go places and take photographs of them and share them online is so that people can learn that and have the same appreciation as I do. Cause there's just less and less wilderness every day. And, uh, I hope that we can turn things around and have a different mindset and appreciation towards nature and, uh, take care of it better. Wow. You know, I mean, you said so much in that opening statement. I mean, it could lead me on to 
20 or 30 other different questions in relation to it. But I think like the passion for where we live as a human race is something I think which is changing quicker than we've ever seen in the past number of decades. And true photography is one medium, true art overall is another medium of capturing it, how it looks at that point. And I think if we look at images now versus images 20 years ago or 20 years in the future, there'll be vastly different as well. So I think your passion to kind of share that beauty is admirable because you, you can see that, like I said, in the images that you take, you're not taking a snapshot, you're taking a moment of time in an area and you capture it so well. So, I mean, yeah, phenomenal intro, I suppose, in relation to who you are. And like, as you mentioned also, it's not about the photography. So, you know, your gas, you know, gear acquisition syndrome isn't that strong, but your gas for the earth is by far superior, I imagine, to be able to get out and be immersed in that as often as you can, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, I'm still shooting with a Sony A7R II. Like, I don't have the latest and greatest gear. Like, it, it does what I need it to do. Mm -hmm. I don't really need more than that. And uh, yeah, most of my you know, the money that I bring in from my photography just goes right back into my explorations, being able to travel more places, being able to spend more time and um, share this message that I have that mm. nature mm. is so important in it's pure unaltered state. And we just need to protect as much of it as possible. Wow. Yeah, it's really, really good. Really interesting as well. Um, and I suppose if we cast a, go, go back a couple of years, you mentioned in relation to, you know, you quit your job and you went full time in photography, but how did you get started in photography? I know you're an avid skater. So did it come around with skating from filming or was it the camera of taking photos you picked up first or which way was it? So as a kid, I think just like any kid um, using disposable cameras, taking a little film camera and stuff on family vacations, uh, kind of being the designated photographer in my family. Mm -hmm. um, not because I had any skill, but just because I was a kid that was excited to do anything, right? Mm -hmm. um, I guess that you could say that's where it started, but I really got into it, like you said, when I was filming skateboarding because I loved skateboarding. And in the skateboarding world, if you do something and you don't film it, it may as well have not happened, right? right? So like you can't you can't go and tell people you did something crazy. You got to have footage to prove it. And mm -hmm. so in skateboarding, filming and skateboarding go hand in hand. And so I was fortunate enough to be able to get a, a nice video camera. And so I kind of became the designated filmer in my crew of skateboarders and okay. started taking it more seriously. And then I began to sell footage to skateboarding companies and things. So it kind of became my little job um, just when I was like 16 years old until I was 19 and I kind of stopped skating as much and kind of moved on to other things. So I learned a lot about cinematography. And so then my job when I was older became um, filming like marketing videos or making uh just videos for all different kinds of brands, all different styles, kind of whatever work I could get. And so I learned a lot about cameras during then. And then I got a DSLR because the video on DSLRs was so good. And uh, before that, I always had video cameras that couldn't take photos. So I was limited to only video. And I, I never even thought about photography. I never even, 
even when I got a DSLR, I was like, I'm only getting this for video. I wasn't even interested in taking photographs because that just wasn't the medium that I was using for the stuff I was doing. Yeah. But then um, when I decided to start traveling the world and stuff and uh, started going to all these different countries, uh, I kind of started messing around and taking snapshots instead of always filming stuff. I would take pictures on the side. And then um, I kind of started exploring that more, started getting more into it, started paying more attention to composition, lighting, the time of day that I was at certain places started getting more into nature. And uh, as I wanted to convey the experiences I was having in nature, I realized that photography was actually, for me personally, a better medium to express what I wanted to than video. Okay. Um, I felt like it captured lighting better. I felt like you could, I mean, with video, you can tell a story with audio. Um, you're not stuck to just one perspective. You can move the camera around, you can show all different sides of a place. But with photography, I feel like it, has certain dimensions that video doesn't have like um you can focus more on composition you can focus more on lighting and you can create things that are a bit more abstract or a bit more representational instead of like very documentary like video is mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i think also with that when you're looking at light in the landscape light can be fleeting so you can stare at an image for a long period of time whereas a piece of video you're not going to stare at that for a long period of time you're not going to pause it and look at that freeze frame so you're capturing a moment of beauty with light with good composition in a stunning area and you're also able to tell that story because somebody has time to be able to digest that image as opposed to a fast moving frame i imagine from video so is that kind of a, a good representation of why you see the the beauty within the image more so than the video let's just say yeah exactly i think that's that's a great point mm, okay and you know i know you've got the passion for landscape photography but like you did you take photos of skateboarding or was it only video or have you tried your hand at other different genres of photography over your journey so far so um when i got into photography i guess you could say like the genre of photography that i was doing was kind of like lifestyle photography like when i was mm -hmm. traveling and stuff um sometimes i would be shooting like a natural landscape but then also maybe i'd be shooting like a buddhist temple or some kind of cool architecture or you know people mm -hmm. stuff like that just kind of random stuff little special moments i was having while i was traveling and then it became narrowed down to the kind of photography that I do now. And uh, that's really the only genre that I've taken seriously. Like mm -hmm. I've never tried to photograph weddings or do anything else outside of nature photography for money or anything like that. C could you do a wedding if somebody asked you to do a wedding? No, would you go, no, thanks. Or would you say, oh, maybe? Uh, no, I definitely, I definitely wouldn't want to do it. No, I'm, I'm the same. I'm the same. I always, yeah. I, I, I say it many times in the podcast is that, you know, I don't need to pose a rock. Um, and that's the biggest thing because, you know, human beings, they're, they're more dynamic, they're moving, you know, you've got one shot at getting a moment. And that for me is far too much pressure, particularly from a wedding point of view, because you mess that up. You're not going to be able to get whatever amount of people at that wedding back in again to capture that, you know, but on the flip side to that, I have seen some very interesting, uh, wedding photos that are more capturing a moment, you know, so they're snapshots really, but as opposed to posed, so it's more natural. So like when you're traveling, you say you captured moments of people. So there could be somebody doing something 
and it's like street photography to a certain extent. But if you bring that into wedding photography that you're kind of fly on the wall and you're looking around at people, you can capture some phenomenal moments that not necessarily wedding, inverted commas, you know, photograph where everybody's posed and they're all looking into the camera. And I think they are more natural for me looking at things because they capture the humor, the stories, the emotions, you know, the, the actual, it could be happiness or sorrow or whatever it may be, depending on the face that you're looking at. And what you interpret into that, I think, is something where it can be completely different to a standard wedding. So that's probably the only way I'd do it is someone said to me, would you shoot a wedding? Yeah, okay, but I'll sit by the sidelines and I won't be trying to direct people to to pose them. And I think like, landscape for me is something, you know, that I'm, I don't think I'm as passionate as you, let's just say, in relation to traveling the world to be able to experience the globe and capture it through images. But when I go out with my camera, nothing else is going on. I'm now immersed in what I'm looking at in front of me. And that's the beauty of photography for me. So if I was to bring that into a different genre, I think I probably wouldn't have the same passion because sure. it's not, it doesn't give me the same fire, you know? Yeah, for me, it's uh, such an important part of what I do is that I connect with what I'm photographing. And uh, one of my favorite photographers, Sebastiao Salgado, um, can't remember where he said it. I think it was in his book, Genesis. Uh, he talks about loving your subject. And uh, that's something I always try to pass on to my students. Like, you shouldn't just go to a place and take a picture of it because it's quote unquote cool or it's popular. You should be taking pictures of things that you love that uh, you have a connection with that make you want to pull your camera out and point it at it. And so like, I just don't have that connection with people or urban places or anything else besides nature photography. And even within nature, I only connect with certain things and you're not going to see every kind of subject matter in my portfolio because they're just certain things that don't, uh, that I don't resonate with at the moment. Maybe mm -hmm. later on, I'll build a relationship with them when I understand them more. Uh, just like now, I shoot a lot of trees. And before when I was starting out, I'd shoot a lot of mountains. You know, you go through these transitions because you change as a person. But um, it's it all comes down to what I connect with personally. And a lot of times I'll connect with a tiny little puddle in a very iconic location where people are going for something completely different. But I just, mm -hmm. you know, I connected with a different kind of thing there. Mm, absolutely. I fully get that. And I mean, you know, you mentioned as well at the outset that you've traveled the world, you know, you've seen many different things like, okay, you've seen glaciers, you've seen mountains, you've seen coasts, you've seen trees and such like that. That's an awesome life to be able to live. How does, how is it waking up in the morning and realizing saying, you know what? Yeah, I go, I get to go and immerse myself in the beauty of nature at my will per se, obviously you're, you're a family man, but you know what I mean? In that way. That's an incredible life to be able to have. How does it feel to be able to do that on a daily basis? Yeah, just this weekend, um, I was visiting Zion National Park here in Utah, wow. which is a place that I go to all the time. But this time, um, my parents were able to come by for a day and uh, hang out with me and my family and go on a couple hikes with us. And nice. they they hadn't been to Zion since like the 90s or something like or 80s like a long time ago and they hadn't really done anything there before so they were doing a hike that they'd never done before and they were it was so cool to see how they were just blown away mm. and uh you know it made me think like wow i've been here countless times mm. and uh you know people they they save up all year long they save up vacation days to come out to these kinds of places and i get to frequent them all the time and uh that always makes me realize how 
fortunate I really am and how grateful I am that I made this decision to live in this way so that, you know, I, I clearly know what I want in life and I've done a good job at obtaining it and mm -hmm. uh, having the kind of life that I want because I've been deliberate and careful with where I live and, you know, different choices. And, uh, it, it's just, uh, yeah, I never forget how lucky I am that when I'm backpacking in the mountains or taking photos of trees on a frosty winter morning or stuff like that, like I'm, I'm, I've clocked in, you know, like I'm, mm -hmm. I'm on the clock, I'm working. That's, that's crazy. And, mm -hmm. uh, that whenever I think about it that way, it, it never ceases to amaze me that this is like real life. It's not a dream. And I, I feel super lucky. Yeah, it's awesome, man. It's awesome. And, you know, the other beauty that you have as well, as you think about it, like, as you say, let's say I wanted to go to visit Sion and I'd have to book it months in advance. I'd have my time off from work and I've got a fixed window. But you're known to saying, you know what, I'm going to go there for as long as I need to go there to be able to capture what I want to capture. So you might spend a week there. You might spend two weeks there. You might spend a month there. And you're really, really getting to know that. So that's a phenomenal thing to be able to have as well in your locker that you can actually do that. Because you're not now tied to, you know, it's shitty weather today and the forecast isn't good for the next four days. Okay, I'm, I'm goosed. No, you say, okay, well, I'll just wait for that to pass. But in the meantime, you're still enjoying where you are as well. So that to me is beautiful, you know, that you can actually do that. So yeah. like, yeah, so like when you, when you think about it, you know, um, you're getting into wilderness areas, you really want to explore and see the natural beauty of the earth. And as you said, you know, it is diminishing on a regular basis. One thing that you guys have in the States, and I, I've read it in relation to what you've written about, is roadless areas. Now, in Ireland, we don't have that because we're not we're a small, small country. But, you know, we've got green belt areas. And these are areas that will never be built on. They'll always remain green. But tell me a bit about the whole roadless area aspect of it. And tell me in relation to how important they are as you're, in your thoughts for the next generations. Well, I have a kind of unpopular opinion about national parks in that I don't necessarily think that they're like the best. Okay. Um, to me, a national park is a representation of wilderness. It's not actual wilderness. It's showing you what it's like, but it's not showing you what it is. Because in true wilderness, we have allowed the animals that live there, the trees that live there to drop seeds wherever they want, to sprout up wherever they want, to do as they please. Whereas in a national park, everything is very controlled. Um, things are paved, there's railings, there's bathrooms. It's been altered to suit our needs as tourists and to make it as comfortable as possible. Whereas in the wilderness, it's not making a single change for your experience. You're there and it is how it is, and you have to adapt to the place that you're in rather than the place being adapted to you. Mm -hmm. And so roadless areas, we also have uh, you know, wilderness study areas or designated wilderness. To me, those are like the holy grail of conservation because what it means is that if a place is designated wilderness, not only is it going to be protected in perpetuity because supposedly it's forever, um, no president will be able to undo it or anything like that. That's the idea behind it. Obviously, things can change, and uh, I'm still wary of that. But um, it can't be developed. You can't pave roads. 
there's barely even any trail maintenance and there are very few trails that are even created and uh, you're not going to find like signs really there are zero bathrooms the land isn't going to be altered or adapted to fit the needs of human beings that are visiting and so there you can actually get to experience what nature is like without it being you know adulterated and changed and that is such a different and more profound experience than going to a national park where it's kind of like contrived you know an amusement park or something yeah it's very contrived yeah. it's it's not natural yeah it's, it's just a representation of nature it's not nature in itself and i think the other side of that then as well is that you know national parks can be known for these honeypot locations these beautiful areas where everybody rocks up they arrive i mean i see it here in ireland in, in beauty spots for example people will drive around the country they'll arrive somewhere and they'll get out of the car they'll take their picture and they're back in the car and they're gone within 10 minutes and yeah. that's not really taking in anything that's just getting the picture on the phone to show their friends that they visited that that's not living and breathing in the air and immersing themselves within that so what you're describing here is you get off the beaten track, you get away from all civilization, and you become part of the wilderness around you where there are no mod cons, there are no creature comforts, where the, the wilderness can eat you up in an instant, let's just say, but you mm -hmm. have to learn to adapt for you to adapt to the, to, to the where you are as opposed to the other way around by putting in paved paths and bathrooms and uh, a coffee shop. You might know it, these are all creature comforts to make it more humanized but the wilderness is nowhere near that. Wilderness is real, let's just say. So like when you're out in that, you're not thinking of, you know, where's the closest bathroom or anything like that. You're not thinking, oh, I've got no Wi-Fi, or you're not thinking where I have to go down this path, but I want to go over here. You have to be thinking of where you're walking, how you're walking. Are you going to be damaging anything in regards to any plants or anything like that? Which people, let's face it, they don't even consider that when they go to areas because they're they're populated in reality and they're made to make it passable for them as opposed to the real world. And like, I'd, I'd love to, um, in many ways, you know, to have lived in, in Ireland thousands of years ago is because we were just a big forest, but the whole lot of that has been gone because we've changed all that. Obviously, you know, we made fields for farming and so forth, but we have a small bit of, um, uh, indigenous trees left in Ireland where the rest of them have been, taken up and planted with ferns to be cut down again and you know turned into wood but when you've got a vast continent like you have in the u.s how much is actually there of the u.s that isn't humanized let's just say is there much left across the u.s of that i couldn't tell you like the exact percentage but um i know in the united states now there for example there's only um 30 percent left of old growth forest okay. pretty sure that's the number right um it might be even less that's that's the most that there would be it might be less than that but uh there there are still like that's why i love living in utah there's so much wilderness here yes we have five very popular and large national parks but outside of them there's uh wilderness areas and national monuments which don't have paved roads and things like that and uh it does feel endless when you're there. Like you just look out and see nothing for miles. I mean, there's canyons and things, but you know, you can just experience this huge space 
which mm-hmm. uh, I feel like is going for now. It's kind of take it for granted, but it's going to become more and more valuable. The you know the more crowded things get and the less space we can actually experience on a day to day basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are going to appreciate the nothingness of the desert more. But I love the United States because you know it is one of the last countries that still has a lot of wildness to it. Even if you don't count Alaska, which is like, you know, incredible yeah. up there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just just in the southwest alone, we have a lot of places. I wish we had more and I wish less of it was national parks and just wilderness instead. But um, I feel very fortunate to live here because like in Europe, like you're saying, uh, there's just like no land left. Everything's been populated. Uh, when I went to the Dolomites, I was disappointed to see that like in all these epic locations i'd seen on instagram and stuff when i got there in person there was a restaurant and a hotel like right on the lakeshore and uh national parks and things like that they do a good job at preserving the aesthetic qualities of a place Mm -hmm. Um, it'll still look beautiful at least from a certain vantage point if you don't look behind you or something like that Mm -hmm. but they've lost the other sides of the experience, which are like even more powerful, you know, those feelings of being in a wild place, the silence, the, the stillness of it, um, that vulnerability that you feel knowing that you're not in control and that you're at the mercy of mother nature and the elements that's just Mm -hmm. gone. And for me, that's such a huge part of why I love being out there. Oh, do you know what? I, I I haven't experienced it the way I'm sure you've experienced it, but even as you're describing it there, it's something that I think everybody should aspire to try at least once. But the fear is going to be too much because you're going to miss the comforts that people have been used to having all of their lives. So like one of the other areas, you know, that you are very good at and quite passionate about is educating people about photography, but also in relation to nature and the wilderness and so forth like that so if i was to ask you from you know in 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 teaching people what do you enjoy most about it do you enjoy teaching people the beauty of nature first and foremost and then secondly photography do you enjoy teaching them photography and then they'll enjoy the beauty of nature as a derivative of that or is it a combination of both what do you enjoy about your educator point of view a lot of the education i do is online um, or through my tutorial videos. So it's not necessarily like photo tours or workshops in yeah, places. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the majority of what I do is just teaching photography skills, composition, things like that. Mm-hmm. And the, what I enjoy about that, it's nice to help fellow artists that are at a different stage of their journey than I am. Um, it's nice to share things that can help them jump ahead, uh, not just to make better images and become popular on Instagram, or whatever, but just to see how they can experience the same fulfillment and satisfaction that I've experienced by developing their skills in order to be able to bring into reality the things that they have, the concepts and ideas that they have in their mind. Um, it's very cool to help them learn how to make that into a photograph and help them bring that to fruition because mm-hmm. It's been so rewarding for me to learn, even though I've done it all on my own and um, I've never taken a workshop. I've been lucky to have a couple of mentors like David Thompson and Alex Noriega. Um, But, you know, it's nice to help people kind of jump ahead and 
uh, see them experience that same joy that I have from being able to do that. When I've done in-person workshops, which I occasionally do, that's different because a lot of the times you're bringing them to a place that they've never seen before. And it's amazing to see a place that you're very familiar with through fresh eyes again. And you kind of get to relive that exciting first moment you had when you first got there vicariously through your clients. And so, um, yeah, when it comes to like doing stuff in person, private workshops or whatever, uh, group workshops, it's always really fun to see that. And mm-hmm. I feel like it is more about that. That's why I enjoy doing it. I like showing people the place, but, um, yeah, it's just really cool to see people develop and, uh, be able to be a small part of their journey in that. Uh, And I imagine through the medium of photography for them to appreciate nature even more so again, so that, you know, when they do go back out, even if you're teaching somebody online and such like that, they're looking at at a different viewpoint or looking at a different set of eyes, let's just say, that now they have got the tools to be able to capture the beauty that they see. Because, you know, the phrase, you know, you might have a beautiful area, but it may not necessarily be a good photograph. And they people can rock up and take that snapshot and now they can go back after learning more about photography in a local area and then capture the true beauty of that through the skill set that you've taught them in how to take the photo online, how to edit the photo when you're teaching the online course as well. So I think both of them can give people a better appreciation for nature purely through the medium of photography. And that's that's the beauty of photography in reality because, you know, the landscape photography, because you're, you're either attracted to photography and then landscape comes secondary or more like most people, you're attracted to the landscape and you just so happen to have a camera to try and capture that. So I think between both of them, the net result is that people will appreciate nature more. I, I imagine yeah? that's what I get from that. Yeah. Through photography, you learn to see the world in a different way and you learn to see all of these things that, maybe years before you would have un, you would have they would have gone completely unnoticed you wouldn't have even paid attention to them and i've seen that in myself like the more i improve as a photographer or the more deliberate i become as a photographer the more i tend to notice things that before i i completely disregarded and so mm-hmm. that yeah what you're saying is completely true Um, By helping photographers to learn how to see more and to see better and notice more things, they're going, their appreciation grows for nature because they're going to see a lot more things that they hadn't noticed before. They're going to appreciate details more. They're going to notice the nuances and the subtleties of nature that most people don't take the time to appreciate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and potentially feel the light as opposed to see the light you know and i think that's the biggest point that i've learned of being out in it you actually can feel the light hitting you when you're out, out in the landscape as opposed to when you're not a photographer you just see the light you don't take any difference of it you learn about all the different as you say nuances that are there and the different types of light that are there and that's where i think the beauty of it comes in because you wouldn't even recognize what they were if you weren't wearing a photographer glasses let's just say uh, yeah, and all, you just and all, think sunlight or darkness. Yeah, exactly. And also the other typical one is like you get clear blue skies. The, the average layperson goes, oh, this is fantastic weather. Photographer, you're like, oh, give me some clouds. You know, and that's where the differences, I think, come from it. Because when you understand that and you're drawn to that through the camera, it definitely changes the, the view on, on areas which are naturally beautiful anyway. But now you see them in a different way. So, yeah, I think it's a, a, a good connection. Um, 
And and something else, I suppose, actually, I want to ask you one question before I go for one for first break, right, is you've mentioned about going around the world and seeing all different places. And I imagine there's been a number of places that have really hit you passionately, like a stake through the heart that you absolutely fell in love with or you're heartbroken in relation to seeing things or you never realized was there. Is there one place in particular that you visited so far that I don't want to say favorite because you can never really say favorite because your favorite can most people would say it's the most recent place that I've visited exact example. But is there one particular area that sticks with you every day? This is a hard question because as naturalists, uh, a lot of the times the places that we love, we're hesitant to share them with the general public because yeah. we want to, we don't want them to become super popular. Sure. So there was. So this- I don't know if I can answer this honestly. So there was this one place that had this. Is that a way to, to do it as opposed to a specific location? Yeah. So I'll just say there is a mountain range uh, here in the U.S. that I've become particularly fond of. And anybody that really follows my work probably knows what I'm talking about. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just to kind of, I don't know, weed out some people, maybe. <laughs> I'll just be vague. Yeah. But, uh, it's a mountain range that before not too many people had photographed. And so, and it's very wild and remote. Um, you have to hike minimum 10 miles to get anywhere in the range at all to even get near the mountains. And so uh, that alone has prevented it from becoming too popular because it, it requires a lot. of the other people gone anyway, no straight away from that hike. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, the weather there can be very brutal. Um, the season that you can photograph it or be in there is maybe two months long. It's very short. So each year I look forward to going back there and then I do as much as I can before the season's over. And then I, I look forward to the next year. And I've been going there the last six years, every single summer, spending like almost the entire summer and part of fall there. Nice. It feels like... That, that's one of the places, like there are several places like this, uh, especially a lot of the desert and canyon country here in Utah, which my portfolio shows um, that it feels like I'm coming home when I go to them. Like I just feel very comfortable and I just keep going back uh, constantly because it's like the more I go, the more I realize can still be done. And uh I kind of just like see these gateways to more places or more ideas or more things that I can do. And I just, you know, it's kind of like a relationship with a person. Like the more you get to know them, the more you love them and the stronger the relationship grows and the more you want to be with them. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, these places just keep calling me back and I, I don't think I'll ever get tired of them. So yeah, there's, there's a mountain range that's like that for me. Um, I just want to explore every inch of it and I've been doing as much as I can each year and I, I'm going to continue to do that. And, uh, yeah, it's a very special place to me. Is it like, as if it gives you a creative fire as well, as you say, you can see different things and you want to explore it more. You want to get to know it even more intimately. And that's what fuels you because you know, by exploring that you're making a personal connection with that area for yourself more so than the photography. And that's the drive. Is that a good summary on that? Absolutely. The, if you look at the images that I released from the first year that I went there, they're a bit more obvious. Um, they're all original because there are places that haven't been photographed at all before, Mm -hmm. but 
they're kind of just obvious perspectives. Um, to me, they feel a little less personal. And then if you look at the new stuff I shot this year, which I haven't released and probably won't for a long time, mm-hmm. um, just me looking at it, I realize like, wow, it doesn't even look like the same place. Like I'm seeing it so differently now. Um, even areas that I've been to every single year, um, you kind of just get the obvious stuff out of the way in the beginning. And then you start looking more and more because you're kind of forced to, the more you come back to it, the more you got to try to be different and you can't just take the same photograph every year. So yeah, I've been noticing lots of things about it, appreciating it a lot more as I see all these different scenes that before I didn't notice just because of spending so much time there, uh, weather conditions as well. They change every time. So even though you've been to a place before the weather might make it a completely different place photographically the next time. Right. Like mm-hmm, make mm-hmm. things stand out that didn't before. Yeah. Um, so that has definitely happened for sure. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. It sounds like, you know, it's a place that your heart lies and that you want to get back and recapture some of that each time you know eric it's been a phenomenal first part of the show what i'm going to do is i'm going to take a quick break and i want to come back and i want to talk to you now about your recent accolade as well so we'll be right back after this if you're enjoying this episode of the irish photography podcast why not jump back and listen to the back catalog we have of episodes where you'll get some great insights from fantastic guests gear reviews lots of hints and tips and above all else keeping you company while you drive or relax thanks very much for listening please consider subscribing, leaving a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. So you're very welcome back to the Irish Talk to you podcast. So Eric, like I said, you know, I want to talk to you about your recent win and winning the inaugural Natural Landscape Awards. Firstly, massive congrats. I mean, you look, you know, you have a plethora of beautiful images, but the images that were presented and showcased as part of that, your winning images just jumped off the screen, me looking at them. So, you know, fantastic uh, achievement congratulations in relation to it tell me how was that journey how was the experience in the whole awards themselves um it might sound kind of anticlimactic but uh i actually just liked the principles of the competition and i respect the organizers you know matt payne tim parkin alex yep. nail uh i think rajesh was the other organizer um yes I liked what they were trying to do. And so I didn't enter images thinking, oh, I'm going to win this contest. Um, Which images can I put in so I can win? Um, I just wanted to show my support and just be a part of it because I thought it was cool. It was a competition that I respected and there aren't many out there that I feel that way about. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, I just entered my images without any kind of expectations and then when I got a phone call that I had received the the photographer of the year award, I, I wasn't expecting it at all. And so I wouldn't really say it was like a journey or anything like that. It was just kind of a, I don't know, kind of a random thing that happened. Tell me in relation to, you know, about one of your images that you've entered and one of the winning images as well that's been presented as part of the showcase on that. There's one image here. It's a really abstract image. It's of two leaves. There's some beautiful colors within that as well. Tell me a bit about that image. How did that co- image come to pass? Uh, back in 2018, there's a national monument here in Utah called Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. Okay. And uh, the presidential administration decided to dismantle the monument and turn it into three smaller national monuments. And if you looked at the maps that show like all of the known um, coal, uranium, 
and uh, petroleum deposits in that area, it was very obvious that they were trying to free up those places so that they could mine them and drill them for the oil and uh, exploit it. Exactly. And so I was really upset by that because I love Escalante. And even if, you know, it was any other place uh, that didn't happen to be so close to home, I would have cared. But this was a place that I go to all the time. And so I wasn't willing to just hand it over like that. And so I decided to focus all of my efforts on photographing this place. And so long story short, that was one of the photographs I took while exploring the canyons and uh, all the amazing areas located inside of this national monument. Um, A lot of them, which were excluded and I knew were going to be developed and changed if, if this act uh, went through all the way, I was uh, backpacking in a Canyon with my wife for a week and it was during Thanksgiving. So it wasn't crowded at all. It was pretty much just um, me and her the whole time. And we were wandering through the Canyon, just looking for different stuff. And it's always been one of my favorite types of subject matter where you'll find these pools of stagnant water, which evaporates very slowly because it's in these shady canyons, which don't really get hit by sunlight. And so the water stays there so long that in the fall, when these leaves fall on top of it, they decay in the water and they release all of this oil that um, if undisturbed will form these amazing colorful uh different kinds of swirly formations all these lines and like in that one it has this interesting pattern that almost looks like uh stone or something like adobe or something like that yeah um we were finding uh, little puddles like that which are really cool and uh i photographed the cover of my new book on that same trip okay but then uh this one section was just like nothing i'd ever seen before and it was just like a 100 meter long river of just covered in that oil and i shot for days and days and days i kept going back to that spot and uh, that was one of the photos that i took in that section and since then i've gone back to that canyon every fall hoping to find a similar kind of thing and it's been completely different and i've never seen it that incredible or extensive ever again and so that image has become even more special now because I thought I'd just be able to return to that spot and get to shoot that kind of stuff whenever I wanted. And uh, that's not the case at all. And um, just in general, that kind of phenomenon is hard to come across. For sure. And I mean, you know, one thing I love about when you look at an image is that you have to figure out what it is. And I thought that that was actually a slice of rock. But as you say here, it's actually the sediment from the oil that has actually been the water is evaporated, leaving that there, and then the leaves go on that. And the color palette on that is absolutely phenomenal as well. I mean, like for you to be able to spot that, most people, if they're walking along there, would walk over that. They wouldn't even consider it. But you spot it, you're you know, not the 100-meter long one, of course, you know, you're going to see that. But, you know, to find the detail of that image, compose that image as well, because it, the image is balanced. You know, you've got the coloring on both sides. You've got the two leaves as well within the image. It's really, really striking. And it kind of draws me in, and I'm interested, that's why I was interested to hear the story behind it, because it does draw you in to kind of want to know more. And there's a a really pertinent story behind it as well, I think, which is passionate, as you say, to you in regards to the, the destruction that will be going on, because that's something that is a derivative of that, let's just say. Um, yeah. is, there, like, is there going to be things that you're photographing now 
that, like we said at the outset, aren't going to be there in 20 years. But conversely, is there going to be things discovered in 20 years when things start falling apart that were hidden away for so many years by what we have done? Do you know what I mean? So like you're, you're capturing something there in a moment and it's a beautiful photograph. I mean, and I'm, I've, I've loved hearing the story behind it, but nobody else is going to be able to get that exact same image again, ever. You know, the, the yeah, it doesn't of, exist anymore. Yeah, it's 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 a once in a lifetime moment, which is gone. Yeah, yeah. Um, and tell me in relation to the, the the contest, then. Um, so you entered it because it was passionate in relation to something that you are, and I think you know you're passionate about the earth, you're passionate about nature, but also this. The, what intrigued me about the contest was that it was images that were natural as opposed to over processed, contrived, or derived from something else and such like that, and. That's a perfect example there, I think, of something which is natural, that to be captured in an image is great because it's not going to be there anymore. So it, it all tied in together, I think, beautifully in the whole natural uh, aspect of the contest. It, there wasn't much processing, I don't think, you had to do in relation to that image, you know, because they're the, the colors that were there themselves. So, like, you now are, you know, the, the winner of the inaugural contest with some beautiful body of work what does it mean for you now as well going forward from here like what 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 will you do with the crown that you're going to wear for the next year let's just say did you get the crown in the post yet by the way or is matt still holding on to it <laughs> i haven't received that and also i haven't heard any word of like people having to address me a certain way for the next year <laughs> or anything like that <laughs> i really respect the competition i think that it's a great thing and i hope that it continues every year and that it continues to hold its values that it has and uh, doesn't turn into anything else um, other than what it is right now. And uh, I think it's cool because it celebrates things like composition, lighting, uh, things that I value in photography. And it's not that I think uh, composites or anything like that um, aren't good or that there isn't anything artistic about them or that they're not valid in my eyes. Um, I don't have any problem with that. And I actually had a little bit of trouble choosing images because some of mine didn't qualify, but these ones that you see here, you know, that they, uh, you know, that they're real, you know, that I didn't swap anything in and out, in or out of them because the mm -hmm. raw files were reviewed. And so that's kind of cool. Uh, people can't really say stuff like, Oh, he probably just faked that or he faked the colors. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that's a cool thing about the contest whenever somebody wins, it's not really going to feel like cheap or anything like that, or like they kind of did some trickery. It's like a very level playing field, which is cool. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And things are, things are judged based on things that I value, like composition and lighting, like I said, but if I had entered my images and I hadn't won any awards at all, I wouldn't think any less of my images. And mm -hmm. so just because I won, it doesn't mean I think any more of them either. And so, um, I think if you're entering competitions, hoping for validation or hoping, uh, to get noticed or receive some kind of fame or anything like that, I don't think that's a healthy approach, but I think it's a competition that people should support. And, um, it's not so much a competition. It's more like a celebration of, of work. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's been, it's been nice to see people saying nice things about it and everything and uh, mm -hmm. congratulating me and celebrating my work in a way, but I don't necessarily see it as, uh, it doesn't change anything for me really, uh, in terms of my art. 
Yeah, I mean, look, the most important part about an image is that you like the image yourself. You don't take the image, you know, uh, somebody in the podcast said a number of years ago, is don't shoot for the gallery. You know, you're, you're shooting for yourself. And also, if you're entering a contest to win, then all you're going to be having 99.9999% of the time is disappointment. And I think that's not a very good way to, to lead things. So as you say, yeah. like you, you, you like the contest. You know, I know you're an advocate and, and part of, of nature's first. It, it applies in relation to your belief system and the morals that you've created and your own compass and your moral compass around that. And it just so happened that it was for photography to celebrate natural photos which you had so i mean it's as you say it's it's hard to pick images to enter because you've got such a huge body of work in relation to that and i don't think you know maybe i'm wrong here but did you pick one of your favorite images to enter into this or do you have an image in particular or maybe i ask you that question do you have an image which is your favorite image that you've taken so far I don't know if I could pick a favorite image. I think anything that makes it into my portfolio that I share publicly, it's because it's one of my favorites. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm pretty hard on myself with curation. I don't really let anything mediocre slip through the cracks, at least, you know, nothing that I'm not thrilled out, thrilled about. Sure. So if I don't love it, you'll never see it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I don't, I don't, that that's a hard question. I get asked that a lot, but it's like I can't really come up with an answer of a specific image that's my favorite. But w- one other thing I just want to add that I forgot to mention is any kind of photography competition. If you win, all it means is that a certain group of judges liked your photograph. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean it's the best photograph in the world. It doesn't mean you're the best. Photo- like you can't you can't determine that. It's impossible in art. So. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just another thing. Keep in mind, if if you win, that's all it means. If you lose, that's all it means as well. Just, you know, doesn't mean no one in the world is going to like your photograph. Just, you know, these six or seven people, they didn't connect with it. That's okay. Like, you should be confident as an artist uh, to not be bothered by that. And if you're creating really personal work, you should expect that not everybody's going to connect with it in the same way. Um, People are probably either going to love it or they're going to hate it if it's actually if you're being bold and you're actually doing something that is, you know, personal and uh, what's the word kind of uh, not necessarily extreme, but you know, it's not vanilla. Like you're, you're going something that appeals to your own tastes more so than trying to appeal to the taste of everybody. So there's a specific aspect within that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, just being boldly personal. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like, I don't know, have you guys got Marmite in the US? It's a phrase, it's a product which is in in Ireland and England anyway, I know, but they had a an advertising campaign, which is Marmite. You either love it or you hate it. And there's nothing in between, you know. So like, it's something I think when you, if you decorate something at home for argument's sake and you decorate it only to your personal taste, when you want to sell that house, nobody's going to like that in relation to it. So there has to be a kind of a uniformity which will appeal to more people. And I think that's where when we look at subjectiveness of photography, because as us taking the photograph, if we like it, that's all that matters. If it's good for you, that's all that matters. You might appeal to 60% of the audience that they like it also, or conversely, you might only appeal to 40%. It doesn't mean that the image is any way different. You still like that image. And I think where you're, where you're going on that is that if you put too much of a personal view that it only means something to you, let's just say, then that doesn't necessarily make the image stronger or weaker. It's still strong. It could be the strongest to you. Um, and I, I, I've taken images that I go, at, at, it's only okay, but other people go, geez, that's a great image. Or I take an image and I go, this is a banger. And they're like, eh, it's okay. 
And I think that's probably where it comes from because, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, to coin an old phrase. And when you, as you say, you know, you're, you're taking images, you're entering into a contest, it's down to the opinions of judges on that day and what they're influenced on that day and what they're looking for. You could present the same body of images six months later and get a completely different result. No, so I think it's it's a very interesting view that you have in relation to it, and like mentioning I suppose the amount of images as well. And I kind of want to touch on you mentioned a second one in relation to your book. So you know you have a fantastic book that you have put a lot of blood, sweat, tears into, and I know there's a big story in relation to getting that book to where it finally is now. It's a book which is 120 images, I believe. Um, uh, more than 120, I think the exact number is like 136. About. Okay. 136 um and picking those images must have been a challenge for you but you also you know you're telling a story with that image as well um and tell us a bit about your book your book is called conversations with nature tell us uh, a story in relation to that i never really sat down and said okay i'm gonna make a book it's more my approach to photography has always been releasing my images in galleries Okay. So I'm used to curating and putting images together that represent a certain theme or a place or a subject matter. And so over the years, I've become used to just organizing my work that way. And so making a book wasn't much different. It was just kind of, you know, creating four galleries and having them in the same place and having it printed. And I love printing my work. And so I just kind of thought, you know, I want people to see these images printed and the book took shape very easily just because of the way I approach photography anyways. I love writing as well. So I just thought I'll, I'll write about each set of images that's in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll, I'll have four different sets based on different kinds of subject matter. So for anybody that hasn't seen the book, the first section is forests, and then it's deserts, and then it's mountains, and then it's canyons. Okay. And uh, there's an essay about each place and what they mean to me and what makes them special um, in terms of biology, how they're different, what kind of things happen that most people don't know about, um, how they exist, how they came to be, and uh, the threats that they're facing because of climate change. And so it was really kind of all there in my head, and it was just a matter of putting it down. Um, and I just felt like a book was like the best way to share what I wanted to with the world at that moment. And... Choosing the images for it wasn't super difficult because I knew it wasn't going to be the only book that I'm going to make ever. So if anything got left out that I really liked, uh, just because it didn't really fit in or it didn't go with the flow that I created with the other images, um, I can use it in a book in the future or something. You know, it's not the only opportunity I have to showcase all of my stuff. So I think that helped relieve a lot of the stress, you know. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And plus, as you say, by breaking it into the different sections as well, it allows you to be able to tune into certain images that would fit within there. So, you know, like you're looking at a, a, a desert scene as an example, okay, or, or a forest scene as an example. You might say, okay, I want to have 35 images in this area. And the next one you might say, I want to have 30 images within that. So you're you're curating it, as you say in the mindset of a gallery and, and a body of work together. And then when you're writing the essay, the narrative to introduce that, it's able to get your passion as well, I think, and how much your, your love for nature and the areas that you're taking the photographs all to tee up these images 
which will give the visual representation then to the words that you've created around that. So it's four books effectively in one book. Is, would that be a way of describing it? I think so, yeah. But also uh, as a whole, the four sections come together and they yeah. create a broader yeah. message. Yeah. Um, it was just you know showing different parts of that message, mm. breaking it down. Brilliant. And I suppose, you know, we'll get to it in the moment anyway, but where, where can people find this information in relation to the book? I'll put all the links and everything else, obviously, in the show notes, but where can people find the information to purchase a copy of Conversations with Nature? Yeah, so on my website, BennettFilm.com, there's a book section that has my book there, also my new ebook that I released a couple months ago. Okay, super. And actually, one other thing as well, you mentioned a moment ago, similarities in relation to one of the images in the contest is the cover for the book. So did you take that on? You said, was it the same trip that you took that? Yeah, maybe even on the same day. Wow. Okay. Because that's one thing I think, you know, a, a cover jumps out. It's like an image, it jumps out. And when I first looked at the cover of this, again, it was like, wow, Look at the color palette in relation to this. I mean, I want to open it. I want to see what's inside of that. So, I mean, it's a beautiful image, and I think it was a great choice to have it on the the, the front of the cover. And I know that um, I alluded to, you know, you, you had a number of different challenges to get the book to where it is at this point in time. So, I mean, congratulations on getting your first book, because I know you will have others. Um, and, you know, I'm actually probably going to go on now and uh, order a copy as well. Are you still doing the signed ones that you can send over to me, you are? Okay, so I'll order one of the signed ones as well. I'm looking forward to receiving my copy of it as well. Now, if it's coming from the States, it might get quicker. I ordered a book from Gavin Hardcastle from Canada, and it took nearly four years. <laughs> so it'll probably get quicker coming from the States, I think. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to uh, getting my hands on a copy of that. Brilliant. Tell me about, you know, you've mentioned in relation to you've made decisions that allow you to be in areas that you can enjoy from a photography point of view. And you said you're in Utah uh, living there at the moment. You've got you love going exploring the deserts and such like that. In Ireland, we have and I joke about it a lot. You know, we've got such a small country. We've got such diversity from a photography point of view. We're only missing two things. We don't have rainforest, even though it does rain a lot and we have a forest. So you could call it rainforest, but it's not rainforest. And we don't have deserts. So. What's it like to, number one, go exploring a desert? I mean, I know it gets hot during the day and it's freezing at night, but from a photography point of view, what's it like there? Um, and then number two, you know, what inspires you to go exploring the desert areas and what, what is around you? What, what, what have you got on your doorsteps that you can photograph? What makes um, photographing the desert so different than other landscapes is the way I see it is you're seeing like the bones of the earth. And so... Um, you're seeing things, you're seeing the earth naked. It's not covered up by anything. Uh, there aren't lots of trees. There's not lots of vegetation. And so you get to see the earth in this different way, which is much more simplified and raw. That doesn't mean that it's easier to photograph the desert because a lot of times uh, that simplicity can create a challenge for a lot of people because they feel like they can't create something compelling out of it. Mm -hmm. But if you see it in terms of visual elements, and you appreciate the lines and the shapes and the forms that are there without any kind of distractions around them or obstructions, um, you can really have a lot of fun as, a, as an artist because you can just showcase those things instead of being so literal. It's a great place to think more abstractly, think more um, creatively, and not just document literal places because... So few of the things in the desert are interesting if you represent them in a literal way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there's nothing static either, I imagine, in the desert also, because the wind will change the 
patterns every single day. So there's nothing that's going to be, obviously you might have rocks and mountain areas, but in the sand area itself, that never is going to be the same the day after, correct? Yeah, that can change a lot. Or if you find like mud, um, maybe one day it'll be wet and shiny and be reflecting light in a certain way. And then a few days later, it's dry and it has these cracks and different colors come out and stuff. So mm. yeah, a lot of subject matter in the desert is always changing and it's very, what's the word? It's very transient. It's not mm -hmm. permanent. And mm -hmm. so that can be very fun. Um, you know, ice that's there in the morning and then it's gone in the afternoon, stuff like that. And then there's the other aspect of it where it is very static, but you can create movement by being a bit more artistic and tuning into the visual elements more mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and when you're in the desert what's your lens of choice is it wide or is it long lens usually i mean in any kind of landscape i am using my 70 to 300 telephoto lens so yeah. um that's just kind of how i tend to see things i my approach to photography is to kind of start out with the simplest idea and slowly uh, build on it mm -hmm. to be more and more complex until it stops working and then I'll stop there and that's kind of the composition that I end up with um, so a lot of times I just have my telephoto on so I can always start out with the most simple idea possible and then sometimes I'll have to take it off and put on my wide angle lens to continue adding things in that I feel contribute that's a very interesting way actually I haven't thought of it with that so when you're taking your zoom lens you're going right in the detail as you say and then you're making it wider creating more so I've, I've never thought of it that way, actually, because I'd kind of think it the opposite. I'd start with my wide angle lens and I might spot something and go, OK, I think that could be something itself. But you're kind of going the opposite route in relation to that. So it's it, and it's finding something. I think the beauty of a of a zoom lens as well is that you can take a photograph of something and that nobody else would even know where it is because yeah, you, you eliminate the context completely. Yeah. Yeah. And. Talk to me in relation to, you know, the mud flats and the cracks in the mud and such like that. I mean, that's something I think, again, that, you know, I haven't experienced. So, okay, if it's an, a, a field with a bit of mud that we might get a bit of a dry spell, which is rare in Ireland, but, you know, I, I might see them. But, like, are you talking vast areas of this or are you talking pockets of this? And is it difficult to compose a photograph within that? How would you approach that aspect of it? So like with mud cracks, a lot of the times you find a small patch that's like really remarkable. Um, there are certain areas where you'll find like vast expanses of them. Mm -hmm. But I'd say 90% of the time, at least the ones that I find, it's usually a very small patch. So that can be kind of hard because there's not a lot of area to work with. So you got to make it work within these constraints because mm -hmm. um, you don't have a lot of options. While we see a lot of photographs of mud cracks and things, because it's kind of a pub, uh, a popular subject matter out here, and I think it's it's popular because when you're looking at mud cracks, uh, yes, it's mud, but it's so easy to showcase the visual elements. Like the lines are so apparent mm -hmm. that I think it's easy for photographers to see the lines and to see patterns within them. Okay, because it's very obvious. So that's why they attract a lot of people. But I do think it's really difficult to make a really nice mud crack image. Like one of my pet peeves is like when people have uh, a sliver of a tile, like on the edge of their frame, like I just hate that when in my own work, because mm -hmm. it's just distracting. It pulls my eye towards the edge. So like just getting the edges clean so that the eyes can stay more in the center of the frame is super difficult because it, it goes so many different directions and there's so much going on there, is it? 
Yeah, the more intricate and complex and compelling the mud cracks are, the more difficult it is to make it work because there's so many things that have to be doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas if they're super simplified and it's easy to compose, it might not be that compelling looking. I definitely see a lot of images of them that drive me crazy like that. But uh, yeah, I would say they're difficult to shoot, but they attract people because it's so obvious. I think it's hard for photographers, for the for the majority, to recognize patterns and more abstract ideas within other kinds of landscapes, like in the forest or things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, you know, when you have mud cracks or like sand dunes, the lines and everything, they're very obvious and it's easy to see them. So mm-hmm. I think, yeah, that's that's kind of why it's popular. Yeah, it's 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 a very interesting way of looking at it. And I think the other side to it too is that, you know, I'm I'll ask you the next question, I suppose, and that is, you know, um you could have a very good composition and poor light, or you can have great light and a poor composition. So what which are you? Are you a light person or are you a composition person? Are you somewhere in between? What what what's more important? Light or composition in your mind? I think asking what is is more important is like asking what's more important for survival, oxygen or water. <laughs> You can't survive with, you know, you need both of them. So like, yeah, you can get by on just oxygen for a little while, but eventually you're going to die or you can get by with no oxygen for, you know, a few minutes, but you know, you need, you need both. You can't survive on just water, just oxygen. So I think a composition isn't complete without the appropriate lighting that really makes a composition work. Um, and then I think that light is nothing without composition to give it shape and meaning. But is it, but there's oxygen in water already. So oxygen is more important. Yeah. I mean, you could say it's more important, <laughs> but eventually you're going to die from not drinking water. If all you're doing is breathing. Yeah, so yeah, this is true. Yeah. Yeah. You do need, they're both just as necessary. It's just one is more imminent than the other. So have you had images over the years that you've gone, this is a great composition. I'm waiting for the light. I'm sure you have because you will wait for that light to come to make that image be as good as it could be. Yeah. I guess my current philosophy with photography is I never really plan out images anymore. I never really like have certain specific scenes in my head that I want to capture. It's more, I just go to places and whatever is occurring. So like usually I just pay attention to what the light is doing okay. and wherever the light looks best. And I try to find compositions there where the light is interacting with the landscape. And so I really don't have any, like back in the day I had certain kind of shots planned and, you know, kind of a, a list or whatever, a mental mm-hmm. list at least mm-hmm. of things that I hope to capture in different places that I go to. But Nowadays, I just don't approach photography in that way. So I really don't think of anything like that. Um, and so much of the things that I shoot are transient, so they wouldn't be around anyways for, you know, next year or something like that. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. that's kind of what excites me, you know, photographing something that will no longer exist a few hours after I, I shoot it. Yeah, which is the beauty of photography, capturing that moment, you know, that is gone, as you say, a couple of minutes after. I mean, as we talked about a second ago with the sand and the, and the desert, the wind will come in and change that completely. You might have ripples that are great one moment and then they're gone the next. So, yeah, OK, OK, I get your point. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you have to have both water and oxygen. I get you. And the two of them together makes it all worthwhile yeah okay look what I'm going to do is I'm going to take one final break okay I'm going to come back I have um, three questions that I ask every guest and I'm looking forward now to asking you these same questions so we'll be right back after this if you're enjoying this episode of the Irish Photography Podcast why not jump back and listen to the back catalogue we have of episodes where you'll get some great insights from fantastic guests 
gear reviews, lots of hints and tips, and above all else, keeping your company while you drive or relax. Thanks very much for listening. Please consider subscribing, leaving a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. This was something I've seen a lot of stuff out in the wilderness, uh, seen people do some weird stuff, but uh, this was like, this one takes a cake. And uh, so I don't know if you've ever been to Patagonia. It's it's a popular place. Like no. so, uh, I was at Laguna Torre, which is where you have the iceberg lake mm-hmm. below uh, Cerro Torre, which is really popular. Mm-hmm. And I got up for sunrise, and I was over like on the riverside, which is like in a different part than the lake. It's like over on the side where the water's coming out, and I was shooting photos and. It was a really nice morning. And so after the light was kind of too harsh, I climbed over the hill and went over to the lake just to hang out and look at the ice and stuff and try to shoot over there or whatever. And by now there were like lots of tourists coming and they're taking selfies at the lake and stuff. The night before there had been this couple that was hanging out on the lake shore and I saw they were like setting up some kind of shelter to like sleep near the lake, which it's not allowed. There's a campsite like a few hundred yards away that you're supposed uh-huh. to stay at. Okay. And uh, I was walking towards that spot where they had been the day before. And there was like this red bivy sack on the lake shore. And I could see like two heads sticking out of it. And okay. like they were still in it. And uh, I started seeing people kind of staring at them and uh, walking around kind of laughing and chuckling around them. And as I got closer, I could hear like, really heavy breathing and uh sounds that you don't normally hear when you're at this beautiful lake trying to enjoy a sunrise and uh as i got closer and closer because i I was kind of just walking just straight towards it wasn't trying to go where they were but inevitably they're like on the lake shore so i was kind of headed in direction yeah no choice yet i could start seeing movement and i realized what was going on and they were just completely going at it like just like porn video style just yeah no no hesitation they did not care like what anybody else uh was saying or how they were looking at them and uh they were just having at it and then so i kind of went over to a different spot and then afterwards they just got out and they just chilled and they were just enjoying the sunrise just hanging out like nothing ever happened (laughs) jesus that was the first time for me that's bold as brass isn't it but everybody else around them as well they obviously must have had a bit of voyeurism or something built into them i think or exhibitionists or something was it yeah they must get off on the public display of affection wow and was it cold there it was freezing too it was a super cold morning like the lake had ice on it and stuff Wow. It's probably uh, minus 10 Celsius. So their excuse is that they're using the bivy bag and natural body heat just to keep warm, I imagine. It It looked really warm in there, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely effective method of staying warm. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Okay, and the the next question that I have from that is, you know, we've alluded to at the very beginning, is what gear do you use now? So you mentioned in relation to your Sony A7 Mark II. Or Sony Alpha, actually. I think if you have to call it Alpha these days, you're not allowing to call it A anymore. So Sony Alpha 7.2 user. How many batteries? Yeah, A7, A7R2. A7R2. Okay. How many batteries have you, first and foremost? So right now I have either 22 or 24 batteries for it that I carry around. <laughs> One for every hour. <laughs> it's not so much that. It's um, The reason I got them all was for these backpacking trips I do that are like three or four weeks long. The batteries are so small for Sony cameras that it's more lightweight and 
easier to just carry around a ton of these batteries than to bring like a brick to charge them or anything, you know, a power bank. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just stocked up on them. And so if you're shooting in the cold, how many images do you get before you have to change battery? Um, if you sleep with the batteries in your sleeping bag, uh, I feel like they, they do a good job. I don't really notice any difference. If I leave them out overnight, a couple nights in a row and it's really cold, I'll notice, you know, sometimes I'll put in a fresh battery and it's dead or stuff like that. But yeah. if you remember to keep them in your sleeping bag with your water filter and stuff, um, you should be good. Yeah. I haven't really, I don't have any complaints. Or else hire that couple that you had in Patagonia and bring them around and they'll keep the batteries warm <laughs> you the whole time. You'll be perfectly fine. Yeah. <laughs> and um, tell me, you mentioned in relation to your 70 to 300. So that's one of your lenses. What other lenses uh, would you use? Yeah. So I actually shoot with Canon lenses. So I use a Metabones yeah. adapter. Yeah. Um, I might switch back to Canon soon. I'm not sure yet, but I really love the Sony bodies, but I feel like Canon lenses are just the best. They're beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. And they're, and they're not very expensive either. So like a lot of the Sony lenses aren't as good and they're a lot pricier. So yeah. I've just stuck with my Canon glass from when I used to shoot with Canon cameras. Uh -huh. 70 to 300, which I use 90% of the time. And then I have a 16 to 35, which I always have in my bag just in case I need it. F4 or 2.8? F4. Perfect. Yeah. 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 Um, that's a great lens. Yeah. Um, those are the two lenses I always have. Occasionally, I'll bring a 100 millimeter macro lens. Uh, I have a 24 to 105, but I don't take that as much anymore. And uh, last question on gear. Uh, what what feet do you use? What tripod? Really right stuff. Or I was going to say, or do you actually carry a tripod? Do you want to go handheld for most of it to the lightweightness? So the really right stuff. Are they as good as I hear in relation to reliability? They do what they're supposed to do and they don't fail. They're definitely the best tripods I've used. Um, I haven't used a lot of other like high-end tripods. I mm -hmm. was kind of just sick of buying like Manfrotto or you know little travel tripods yeah. every month or so because they would just get destroyed. Yeah. So I invested in a high-end tripod and it's really right stuff, and I've loved it. I've had it for like five years now. I always beat the hell out of my gear. Like I, I'm like a a, a gear uh, sadist. Like. <laughs> I don't even try to take care of my gear. Like I hardly ever use a camera bag. My stuff's usually just like clanking around in my backpack, my backpacking backpack. I hardly ever like clean my stuff. So I never like clean my tripod or anything like that. And it's still awesome. Yeah. Well, you know what? It still works like now. And that's the thing, you know, I mean, look, at things are supposed to do what they're supposed to do. But when they start giving you problems, then they're becoming more of an annoyance in relation to it. And like I've gone through similar to that so many different tripods over the years. And I ended up, though they say never meet your heroes, one of my heroes from a tripod was Gitzo. So I ended up getting a Gitzo tripod and it was damn expensive, but I must say it hasn't failed me yet. And it is solid for what I need it to be. And I've never had fear in relation to it. But saying that, the first day I got it, I was in um, Killarney. It's an area in Ireland here and we're going. it's an area that's quite windy as well. And it was my I've been own- there. Have you been there? Okay, because that was one of the questions I want to get to the end. So like, if you've been to Ireland, but in Clarney, there's an area there and it's quite windy. There's a um, a gap where the wind would blow through. And it was my own fault. I put the tripod up and I went to my bag and I turned around and the tripod was on the ground. But I had no camera on it, thankfully, at that point. But ever since that first time using it, I've never had an issue with it yet. But I will not bring it to the sea. And I'm a seascape photographer in my heart and soul but I will not bring that tripod to the sea because if I get sand into that, that's going to be destroyed. So I keep my old Manfrotto for when I go to the sea. 
uh, and that can be bruised and battered. It's the one that has the clips and stuff like that. I've replaced the clips more so. I don't know how many times, but it's really important, actually. And I think you see people, if you're traveling around the world, and even particularly in the hotspots, they'll arrive with, you know, 5,000, 10,000 euro or dollars worth of gear. And they're putting it on a tripod that they paid $100 in Walmart the day before because they just didn't think about in relation to how important it is. It's crazy when you think about that. You know, it's important to have something solid to put your gear onto. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, absolutely. And I have I haven't ever ever used the read write stuff, but I do hear good things uh in relation to them, yeah, for sure. And it's funny you say one other point there about, you know, Canon glass and such like that. Um I've been very lucky recently. I actually have it here. Um I don't know if you'll be able to see it or not. So Canon Ireland have given me an opportunity to try out the R5. Uh and this is the new 70 to 200 2.8 as well. And it's a cracking, cracking lens. Um, I'm Canon true and true, so I was delighted to hear that you're using the uh, Canon glass. I've heard good things about the 100 to 500 as well for the R5. People yeah. really love that. Yeah, and it's yeah. like really small for really small how big it is. Yeah, the one thing I would say though is that, that for me, I've I have the exact same lens as 16 35 f4. I didn't go for the 2.8 because I don't need to carry the weight. Um, you know, I'm never really going to be shooting at 2.8 anyway. But saying that, I mean, I have used this now. Um, over the last couple of weeks and I purposely put it on to 2.8 and just to see what the bokeh and everything else was like it's a cracking lens and combine that with the R5 and the speed of the focus is really really good um the only challenge I think I have with it is the file sizes are quite large but you're probably used to that I suppose from the Sony world anyway with the large image files what, what size is the uh, what megapixel is the camera it's 42 megapixel. I think it's the same as R5. Yeah, I think yeah, 42 or 45 or something like that on the R5. Yeah, more or less the same. Yeah. So like, I, I, I use an R for my camera, my main camera, let's just say. And I really weighed up, would I go with the uh, R, the R6 or the R5? And I ended up, believe it or not, going for the R because it suited my needs better. Um, but the R6 as well is a cracking camera too. So... Eric, I suppose, look, um, one of the questions I did want to ask you is, you know, have you ever visited Ireland? And if not, have you ever planned to come to Ireland? So you've already answered that. So you have visited Ireland. Tell me, when did you come to our beautiful country? So I don't know if you can tell by looking at me. I'm like uh, mostly Irish, Welsh, Scottish, you know, my ancestors. There's a bit of Irish, uh, all right, Chad, by looking at you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I always wanted to go there just to kind of see... Um, you know, kind of go back to my home country or whatever, my ancestors, kind of mm -hmm. see how how it was and meet the people and stuff. And um, obviously, also because of the landscapes, very beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I did a trip to Ireland, Scotland, and Iceland, nice. and uh, Switzerland and France as well at the end. But um, I loved it, yeah. And where, where did you go in Ireland? So you were in Clarny, yeah? Yeah, I kind of went all over. Um, the main places I went to for like photography were Giants Causeway. Can't rem I wasn't there for too long. I did a little bit more in Scotland, but but that also brings a a funny story back to my memory. Um, okay. Yeah. So that was like when I was first getting into photography. I was just a a poor kid living by myself, you know, uh, barely making it by, and so I couldn't afford much more than photography gear so like i was backpacking in scotland in october and like in ireland as well like wettest time of the year <laughs> just pissing every single day yeah and uh i was wearing like skateboarding shoes 
Okay. Uh, Adequately dressed. I brought yeah. two pairs of shoes. I had like a pair of like dress boots with like no tread on the bottom, <laughs> and then a pair of skateboarding shoes, some Vans, and I would yeah. switch off because one pair would get so wet. I'd switch to the other pair, which is just like kind of damp until that one got super wet. <laughs> and uh, I had like a cotton sweatshirt. I had uh, jeans. And so like one night in Scotland, when I, I was just by myself backpacking the West Highland Way, um, it was so wet. And then once the sun set, it got like freezing cold and I was trying to start a fire, but the wood was too wet and stuff. So then I just like jumped into my sleeping bag, just soaking wet and like the temperatures plummeted and, uh, I thought I was going to like die of hypothermia. (laughs) And, uh, so like on that same long trip, I went to Iceland and, uh, I was with some guys that I met and we decided to go to a hot spring, like in the middle of the day in the winter, uh, to just like be in the hot water and everything. And I had jeans and boots. And so like, we were just hanging out in the hot spring for like an hour. And then once I got out, my jeans were so frozen solid, I could stand them up by themselves. And, like, <laughs> and my boots were just rock solid. Like I could not even stick my foot into them. And so I had to like take my socks off and I had to like get them wet in the hot spring to be able to even put them on. And I had to hike back in wet clothes. And clothes. Oh. That whole like five week trip, I was wet the entire time. It's so humid too. I just could never get dry. There's never any sunlight. <laughs> So yeah, I just trying to visualize trying to get out. You get out and the pants is actually can stand up and the jeans can stand up by themselves. I mean, but to have to put them into the water to thaw them out. That was the only way, yeah. They were they weren't gonna soften any other way. Wow. They're already wet, so Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. It was that that wasn't a comfortable walk back, I I imagine. No, it wasn't. And it was like there was snow and everything, so oh, Jesus yeah you know what you might as well go all in if you're going to do it well you know you might as well do it you certainly did yeah you certainly did so yeah eric it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation you know i really enjoyed your view in photography i've loved getting the insights in relation to the passion that you clearly have for the landscape and such like that tell me what's next for you now and where can people find more information we've already mentioned it in relation to your website for the book but on socials and everything else as well what's next for you and where can people find more information on you well, right now it's still uh, fall season, which is my favorite time of the year for photography. Mm-hmm. And I think also just in general, maybe because mm-hmm. I was born in the fall in October. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to be heading, I've been going to the desert often. Uh, I'll be going back down there in a couple of days to shoot some more stuff. Nice. Before the season's over, going into the canyons and things like that. Um, in terms of like projects, not a whole lot of stuff. Outdoor Photographer is releasing an article that I wrote for them nice. in December. Nice. Pretty excited about that. Yeah. Uh, I'm working on another book, but I can't really talk about it yet. Top secret. Top that, won't, secret. that won't be for a couple more years till it comes out. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You can find out stuff on my website, BennettFilm.com. You can order my current book that I have available there, as well as my ebook. Got lots of tutorial videos if you're interested in post-processing, or I also have a new tutorial series called Essential Theory that focuses more on things like composition, lighting, color theory, things like that. Um, Focuses more on how to take a great photo in the field so that you can post-process it or so that it's, you know, it has the things that you need in order to be able to post-process it and have it turn out well. So 
that, that's a series that I really like doing now. And I'm, I'm working on the next video, which is going to be focused on lighting. I've only done the first part, which is composition mm-hmm. and that's available, mm-hmm. um, refining composition. So yeah, working on the next video for that. Interesting. And I think, you know what, it'll be a, an interesting journey, I think as well to kind of, as you evolve even more on that coming up with different ideas and different concepts tying in from your own experiences that your your students can evolve with you too, I think, and kind of progress through that journey. And I think video is a fantastic medium for that because you can see something, you can, you know, you can explain it, but you've got the visual representation of what you're talking about, as opposed to picking up a book, which is a book is fantastic as well to learn from, don't get me wrong, but learning in video form you can stop, you can rewind, you can repeat, and you're actually hearing it from the person, the educator directly as well, which is really, really important also. Yeah, so that's the next phase, and that's the the, the next iterations that we'll see from Mr. Eric Bennett. Eric, it's been phenomenal. Thank you very, very much for coming on. Um, you know, if you're, you're, you're part Irish, you'll know that we have our own language here, which is Irish. It's called Gaelic. And at the very end of every podcast, uh, I always sign out with a phrase, which is, you know, bye for now. And it means, in, it, that's what it means. In Irish, it means, in Irish, it is slong fold. So, Eric, from me in Ireland to you in Utah, thanks a million. And uh, hopefully I'll see you some stage again, slong fold. Likewise, thanks a lot, Darren. Hey guys, if you dig what you're hearing, why don't you jump over to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating, and don't forget to share with your friends. With all that done, we'll see you next week, and remember, keep shooting.